to Full Service Radio. Full Service Radio. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service. Full Service Radio. Hi, welcome to The Leap, coming to you live from the Line Hotel in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sarah Gordon. I own a small business, Gordy's Pickle Jar, and one of the things I love most about being a small business owner is learning from and talking with other entrepreneurs. And every Wednesday, I get to have these conversations on air by bringing together small business owners from a wide range of disciplines to share stories, wisdom, tips, and advice. On today's show, I'm super excited to chat with Spirits Entrepreneur. Hello. <laughs> um, Kat Hamity, co founder at Capitaline Vermouth. Um, thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, you're here to tell everyone really that the only way that they could, you know, be fully prepared for the Hurricane Florence is if they have a fully stocked bar of Absolutely. Vermouth, right? <laughs> uh, all the Vermouth and all the Up TV that you can manage to fit in your bar and, then, and fridge. And then you'll be good. And then right? you'll be good, yeah. yes. I think most people know Storm that, right? Proof. But let's, re- <laughs> yeah, let's reinforce that today. Um, so before we kind of talk about all things Vermouth, I wanted to chat a bit about um, like the road that led you here. Sure. And how you get, kind of got your start. Absolutely. Um, so um, we um, are a small DC uh, vermouth and apera TV company. Um, we went to market about three years ago here in DC, 2015. But we started, my business partner and I started in restaurant settings. I was a restaurant professional. I really still consider myself a restaurant professional, really, um, for many years in DC. And my business partner, Peter Paston, who's a chef restaurateur here, he and I uh, worked at a restaurant years and years ago. Uh, called Obelisk that still exists, a wonderful little Italian place. And there we started a very sort of humble, small cocktail program. And we were making limoncello. We tried making nocino. We made laurel leaf liqueurs. So sort of anything that you can make in-house, we did. Um, that was the ethos of the restaurant in general. We made you know, our own pasta and butter and bread, et cetera. So um, we started making in-house vermouth, very sort of rustic, uh, very humble version of what it is today. Uh, just for our beverage program. That then expanded into a restaurant where you and I really got to know each other, which is Eto, um, another restaurant he opened. He and I together worked um, on the wine and cocktail program there. Um, so as far as how, that's how I got started, is that I worked in restaurants for many, many years, and that was my profession before I became a professional um, vermouth and aperitivo right. maker that I am today. So how do you kind of kind of make the leap from, you know, just kind of making it in-house at these restaurants to, you know, what it is today. Yeah, well, it was a very organic process, really, going from um, Obelisk many years ago, about a decade ago, where we started making the vermouth, to then opening another restaurant where we kind of hyper-focused on vermouth and Amari. That was what the cocktail program was based around. So, Adetto. Yeah. Adetto, yeah. yes. Um, and we started making several different recipes and it was, it's an incredibly fun, creative outlet, right? It's um, restaurant work isn't always a good time or necessarily the most creative. I and mean, there's a lot of hard work that goes into it, but it was one of those things that um, the, the creative freedom of it all was really lovely. So we um, started making lots of different things, lots of different recipes, different botanical and in about 2000, early 2014, I thought, um, you know, I'd spent about a year working behind the bar there and um, had sounding board boards and all of our, our guests that would come in. They would taste these products that we were making, right, in House of Vermouth. And I had great reactions, very positive reactions. 
and it was like, you better battle that yeah well I mean that. sort of yeah you know and and that kind of got this thought going in my head that you know this is a great opportunity I think the timing in cocktail culture was really great in that um, vermouth wasn't a totally misunderstood put it on the back shelf ingredient anymore people not just in the industry but also consumers were starting to sort of understand it and drink it ever so slightly more than they had historically you know it was a very bastardized ingredient um uh, sort of just you know misunderstood I guess is a better way to to describe it and so lots of positive feedback from our guests there and I approached Peter and I said I think that we should try to take this to market I don't really know what that means <laughs> I don't have a business degree I'd never worked in spirits before I just wrote cocktail you know I, I made cocktails and wrote cocktail menus and I don't know what it means, but I think that we have a really good product. I think it's delicious. We like to drink it, and I like to think that we have pretty good taste. And it seems that um, our guests really like it, too. So why not make some effort to go yeah. to market? And Peter was, like, all on board. Yeah, Peter was on board, yeah. yeah. I think, he, you know, maybe he was a little hesitant at first. <laughs> uh, maybe I blindsided him a little bit. But, um, yeah, he was on board, and we knew, um, I guess, leading into um, where we make our products. John um, Usselton and I work together at Obelisk. John oh, owns okay. Green Hat. That's how He's you guys, the, okay. Yes. So that's the connection. We we know the connection. But um, John, who is the um, co-founder of New Columbia Distillers, um, makers of Green Hat Gin, he and I work together at Obelisk. So there was this family connection already. They had started a distillery in 2012, and that was sort of our our first. Uh, source of information you know we went to John and his business partner Michael and said we want to pursue this what do you think about it and from there uh I want I want to get a little bit more yeah sorry I'm getting ahead of myself yeah Yeah, please Um, please, please. no I just want to I want (laughs) I I really want um kind of like your insight on on this piece of that just you know there's there's so many um aspiring spirit producers sure um but the task of getting a brown uh, like a brand started um seems pretty daunting um so I just kind of wanted to get your take on, you know, the, com- the like the complex laws kind of associated with um, s- the spirits industry. Okay. Because uh, I feel like they sc- that scares many people, right? Well, I mean, it's a it's a super regulated. Yeah. Versus like you know, I mean, even selling food. pickles. Yeah. Distributing for sure. pickles, I could do it nationwide really fast if I had got the account, you yes. know, and I had the resources. Um, it's spirits. It seems a little bit more. Like kind of you have to navigate. Well, you have to navigate it. We were, you know, this does sort of speak to my, what I was kind of rambling about before was we were lucky enough to have Michael and John at New Columbia as sources of information. So we are immeasurably lucky to have them as sort of mentors in our process. Um, But certainly the regulation that goes into spirits, wine and beer production is it's pretty staggering and it's, it is, it's intimidating and overwhelming. It also can be very straightforward. I mean, everything that you do has to be approved, right? Uh, all of your recipes, all of your formulas. And not only that, you're just incredibly, you're taxed right. massively, but you can't like expand. I mean, you can't expand across like state lines right. without, you have to have someone sell your stuff for you. Right. Like and being approved each... in that mm-hmm. jurisdiction. Right. Exactly. There's, there's state laws around how things are distributed. Um, and, you know, there's, for example, there's control states that the state controls every um, liquor that comes in and out of the state like and how Virginia. it's distributed. Virginia, for example, Georgia, there's a few kind of holdout states. Uh, it benefits the state. Uh, it doesn't benefit the maker. And it certainly, I don't think, benefits the, the consumer, the, the denizen of those states. So, yeah, there's a lot of um, picking and choosing which markets you go into. Um, I guess this doesn't really apply to food 
as much no, or no. at all. Yeah, yeah at okay. All. Yeah, you're yeah. just like, send, send it all out. But yeah, I mean, if you get picked up by a distributor that wants to kind of carry your products nationwide and you have that, that retail relationship and account, yeah. then... And there it is. You're good to go. It's straightforward. Yeah. yeah. Um, for for us, it's been more, and it, this is sort of multi layered because we make vermouth and apera TV. That's still sort of uh, outside of the you know vernacular for for a lot of consumers, um, or it's just not as obvious as like a whiskey or a beer. Um, we for us, it, it makes it more challenging deciding which markets we want to pursue. So, you know, we. For example, we're a Washington, D.C.-based company, and we sell in uh, Maryland and Delaware, but we don't sell in Virginia. Part of it is because the process of getting into Virginia is so challenging. The way that they pay you ultimately is a little bit tricky. You have to get the product down to them. So, so yeah, so control states make it difficult, more difficult for, I think, small craft makers. You know, if we were Bacardi or one of the, you know, the huge names, it's not an issue, but for... Um, a smaller producer it certainly has more challenges. I mean, so how does it work with like a control state? If like, I mean, say, you know, a hundred Virginia bars were like, you know, we really want like this vermouth. I mean, yeah. that would, ha- you would have like a stronger case then, You'd right? have a stronger you know, case. Well, in Virginia specifically, they're twice a year, they give you an opportunity to present to the Virginia ABC. Okay. So you come uh, with your product and more importantly, with numbers, they want to know, what, what you sell selling. in your home market, what yeah. your projections are, who you cater to, et cetera. So you have two, twice a year, you have an opportunity to do that. And then they decide if they do accept you and say, sure, come in and sell in our state, whether or not anyone has requested you. I mean, I, I would imagine it would be helpful if you had yeah, that right. sort of thing. <laughs> uh, you know, you could go around and get signatures, I guess, but um, it, you have to sell a certain amount of product or, or you're removed from their listing. This is something actually that happens in Montgomery County too to get hyper specific around like our specific regional stuff. But you have to sell a certain amount. You have to be on like the you know top one thousand products to stay on the list. to stay available yeah. in the Virginia ABC store. So yeah, it becomes you know not to say that we don't want to sell in Virginia. It's just there's a lot of layers of challenges that go on there. Yeah. Right, right. But um, you guys are have just recently or are about to recently expand into New York. That's yes, kinda exciting. yeah, very exciting. Our first uh, market outside of home market will be. Uh, New York-based company, uh, Tom, uh, David, sorry, David Bowler Wines, picked us up, and their market is New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania. So that's our uh, first outside-of-home market, which is really super exciting, and we're, we're really thrilled about yeah, it. Yeah, that sounds awesome. I mean, and I feel like, you know, definitely in New York, I mean, yeah. I feel like you're, you guys are going to do exceptionally well, right? Yeah, I, mean, I think that our... Um, you know, it's sort of the ideal market. There's a yeah. lot of pressure because you want, you know, you really need to be successful. If you're in New York... You got to do it. You got to do it, right? Yeah. So there's there, there's stress involved and pressure, of course, in anything that you do in that regard. But but New York is really obviously, you know, I I think safe to say, the New York cap, you know, the, the cocktail capital of right, of right, the, right, the right, world. Maybe right, I don't know. Right. So yeah, I mean, in having kind of like a specialty product like you have, um, I feel like there's not in terms of just like craft, but it being vermouth. Yeah. Um, like I feel like since it is the cocktail capital, there's kind of less of the education needed. Right. No, it's, that, it's more understood already. Yeah. Yes. The, the small production craft specialty product, which is everything that we do, uh, not to say that it isn't approachable, just in most markets, it's more of a conversation. I think will be an easier, um, an easier conversation in New York. Yeah, right. for sure. So, I mean, we're obviously, uh, how probably, do you guys like in your price positioning? I mean, is it comparable to like other craft vermouths? Well, it's it is and it isn't. Um, I think that we're probably in line with most domestic 
craft for myth. Um, there are few producers on the West Coast that are, are even in DC market a little bit less expensive than us. Part of it is that they have access to wine. There's wineries on the West Coast making vermouth with their, be it their fractal wine, their second press wine, less expensive wine. We source really good wine. We pay a premium for that as the base of the vermouth. Um, and we use really great botanical to aromatize the vermouth. And in the case of the Tiber, the, the spirit that we make, um, you know, our, our ingredients are very expensive. Um, and so, you know, and spiritual margins are incredibly tight as it stands and that just creates a more expensive product. Ultimately we're not making hand over fist, you know, on each bottle of vermouth. We're not like laughing all the way to the bank. It's really priced. (laughs) It's priced in a way that's not a shock to the market. (laughs) It sounds like manufacturing a food product. (laughs) Okay. Right. I mean, I don't think it's that it's really not dissimilar. You know, you purchase your raw material for a certain amount and you have to factor in the time that it takes to produce and be it a pickle. I don't know what the timeline is on a pickle, but you know, vermouth takes about a month and we have partners that we have to pay. Um, and so again, you know, we're not laughing all the way to the bank or, right. you know, <laughs> we're, we're, we're trying to make it approachable for people. And so far it seems that people understand that point of view. Right. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, my next question is kind of, um, you know, I, I want to talk a little bit about what you had just touched on, but it was basically that, you know, if you're starting a spirit brand, you kind of have two options and that one of them is, you know, to either start your own distillery or to partner and contract with someone who already has a distillery. Right. Um, and it sounds like you went with, you know, yeah, plan B. Yeah. Or not plan B, but plan, the second, yeah, the yeah, second yeah, option. Yeah. 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 Um, and e- each, uh, um, option kind of comes with it's, it's, it's like benefits and drawbacks. Sure. Um, so, you know, I guess, well, how come you guys chose the route that you chose in terms of like partnering contracting versus like starting your own, you know, distillery yeah. in DC. Well, we, you know, we, of course, Peter and I discussed at length both options. Um, you know, there, there, like you said, there are certainly a lot of benefits to doing it on your own. Yeah. Um, it's incredibly expensive. Um, we, what, one of what made it actually a very easy decision for us to, to partner with Green Hat was that they, 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 we create a product for them. Okay. So part of the arrangement when we started talking to them was, well, we, they said, we want to make this product. And part of this product is vermouth and you make vermouth. We don't make vermouth. So part there was, it was an easy, it was just an easy organic relationship. So once the conversation started with John and Michael, there was really no reason to pursue going at it completely independent. Yeah. And it sounds like you guys were already like family. So yeah, yeah, I had known John at that point for Jeez, I don't know, five, six years. I mean, this was four, five years ago when we started the process. So, I, you know, I've known John for a long time, and he and his wife, Liz, who's a co-owner of the distillery, are dear friends of mine, um, friends with Peter. It was just already, it was just like, why would you, why would it? It felt really you know? natural, yeah. It felt super natural, yeah. And, um, you know, one of the greatest perks to working with an established distillery uh, is that they've navigated so many things, right? You know, they are a bevy of information. Michael specifically, I mean, he just the ins and outs of TTB regulation and state regulation. It's incredible. I mean, he's a very he's a brilliant man to begin with, but also has many years of figuring it out on his own. New Columbia was the first distillery in DC after prohibition. So they really started from the ground up. Right. And I mean, even to just like distribute their, um, you know, to have access to like their distribution yes. lines is, you know, super helpful. Right. Huge. Yeah. yeah. And that was our first it's like a foot in the door. It's a foot in the door. We, we self distribute in DC. We continue to do that. All of the capital line products and green hat products, um, 
our home market is our own, and that's fantastic. But in uh, Maryland, Delaware, South Carolina market, we use a distributor that they had already a relation, had a relationship with. So yes, that was obviously an easy um, um, relationship to start for us. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's worked out great. You know, the downsides um, are that we are growing and there's only so much space to be had and we don't want to... You know, I think there will be a point where we have to kind of figure out if we're growing. At what point will we have to peel off and kind of uh, start our own? Um, It would be probably a winery since we make vermouth, right? From a regulatory level, yeah. Um, There's only so much space. Green Hat is growing and and evolving and expanding, and we're growing and evolving and expanding, and it is fantastic. Have you guys taken over the the next space? We have the next space next door. We're just waiting on build out, so that will be a, a bar and tasting room. Oh, okay. Yeah. So that will alleviate a little bit of space. Retail, it'll be retail bar and tasting. And so we'll have a little bit more space. Which you're not going to put like, they're not going to put like any more stills or anything. No, not Not right now. That's not the plan. No, we have two stills. And as far as the whiskey and gin, it's, it's enough. I mean, they're running all the time. Time. Yeah. Yeah. We're making rye and we're making gin all the time. (laughs) So, um, it's functioning fine for now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it seems like DC is just kind of like, the place to start a distillery, right? I feel like John and Michael started and then it was just like, boom. We have an incredible makers, distillers, brewers and food community here that I think it's hard to, for any city to rival, I would say. Do you think that, um, in terms of like the distilleries, it's, um, like, is, is it not as highly regulated as other states or like how, how come people, how come people are like wanting to start here in the district? I think that, you know, that's a, that's a, question I can't entirely answer because yeah. I can't necessarily speak for the other um for distillers and other folks in other but, states I guess yeah but I think DC after John Michael established New Columbia recognize the huge opportunity opportunity yeah. that it provides a city that is thanks, John and Michael. developing yeah thanks guys <laughs> um and <sighs> so whether it's less expensive or less regulated by by the district that much I really I can't speak on too much but um you know we have all of these fantastic distillers and one of the great things about the about the DC distillers community and makers community is that everybody has a very specific identity you know there's right there's essentially almost any spirit except for an agave spirit made in the city uh any sort of beer that you could possibly want we have vermouth we have incredible Italian um liqueurs so it's it's a strong community and a successful community. Yeah. But um, I, I'd be interested to know actually on, from a like a taxation or regulatory level what you know if it's more appealing here than say Maryland. Right. Yeah. But Maryland's uh, also growing too. Anyway. Um, I mean, there's like you know when people sign up to kind of like start a spirits brand. I mean, there's so so many different like ideologies, right? I mean, you guys are making everything from scratch. Yeah. You know, there's some people that are that are bringing in right spirit products. Yeah, that's, right? that and was never the plan for. Um, so beyond the fact that I'm the the co-founder and maker of Capital Line Products, yeah. I also am the sales manager for the distillery. So when I speak on we's, it's a little confusing. But we, as New Columbia, from the very beginning, John and Michael never had any interest in purchasing spirit. It was always meant to be done the slow food way, really, right? You right. Know, from from grain to glass, and that that will never change it's much more expensive it puts the product on the yeah, shelf so, for a higher price yeah so I'm, I'm interested to know like how how does that how like how do the other kind of products i mean do they like undercut the price point? absolutely i mean i think that's part of the 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 friction within the distilling community can be that um 
when you do things the way that New Columbia and some other folks in town and across the country do it's it, be a high price point. it's more expensive. Yeah. And so when you purchase neutral spirit and manipulate it, or you purchase gin and you put it in a bottle and you slap a label on it or whiskey, you can, you can get eight year old bourbon barrel, however old you want. And you put it in a bottle and you slap craft on it and it's $10 less than everybody else's product. The market is not necessarily interested in researching why that might be. They're ultimately just happy to see that something is less expensive. And right. per, I mean, you know, right. it's like, it's like, it's very straightforward. Economics, yeah. Right? right. Right. And so there are certainly are more consumers, I think that are interested in products made the way that we make them and the ethos that we do uh, our business by. But ultimately, yeah, it's, it, it's, it's a, a frustration, I would say at the least. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's a number at one point, just another, an aside is, You know, hearing from John and Michael, 95% of gin production in the country is purchased spirit and not actually. Wow. Yeah. And maybe that's, that's not, that number's not quite so high, not not quite so high now, but that at a point was like a real thing. So talking about the bulk of production of craft gin is actually purchased spirit. So never, never would that be something that we would do. It's just not, not our style. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think, you know, just to like parallel off that in the kind of like food and beverage world yeah. on our side, um, you know, there's so much consumer education around just kind of the price point because, yeah. you know, your X amount of dollars higher and people like want to know why. And right. it's, you know, you can't bring everyone into your facility to be like, come, come yeah. check out the process. Let me you show know? you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so unless you're out there kind of educating consumers, you know, th- their eyes are going to kind of veer towards the, the lower price tag. The cheaper product. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that I understand, though, from a business point of view, why people purchase Spirit to begin with. I can see that it is a much friendlier way to start revenue. Um, but I don't think it's necessary. And I, I mean, I respect everyone's point of view. Um, most folks that are purchasing Spirit to begin generally have plans to learn to distill or to begin distilling at a point and making their own product. So... Some people ultimately they'll always just purchase spirit and that's just the way they do it. And, you know, I think that if you have a little bit more passion for the craft itself, then you want to actually be a maker of something as opposed to a bottler. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, I guess if you're purchasing it, you also like don't have, you know, I guess if you're purchasing it, I guess you're saying that, you know, if you are purchasing it, you do at some point have some desire to like make your own spirit. So then, then you're having to like invest in the, you know, the, the infrastructure of like an actual distillery, which is really, really expensive, which is really, really expensive. And it's, it is part of the reason that you purchase is because maybe you've spent this enormous amount of money on your stills and your lease and all of your overhead, you know, and, but ultimately, you know, I can think of, of just of distilleries here in DC that have started that way and that are pursuing the craft of distillation. And so, you know, I think that's that for me is the right way to do it. And, you know, I think I would personally feel more like professional gratification if I did it that way. But, um, yeah, that's the idea. If you've got stills, you should be distilling something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what would you say like are the biggest kind of challenges in the industry, um, in terms of like scaling your brand? I mean, I think we touched on some of them, but industry, I would say, um, Specifically to Capital Line, because we make a pretty specific product, um, it's about growing. We're educating as we're growing. It's a lot of conversation around what we do. 
Um, because we specifically work with in partnership with New Columbia Distillers, for us it's about expanding at the right pace. So we don't want to go, we don't want to expand too quickly. I have a friend who owns a, a distillery here in D.C. and he expanded very quickly and he would lament to me about how he he grew too quickly and it was overwhelming and he felt spread thin. We're doing things sort of the opposite way, yeah. Peter and I. We're, we're, we're thir- this is our fourth year in market. We just celebrated our three-year anniversary in June. Woohoo! Yay! And uh, we are just going, like I said, to New York, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. For the, this is our first uh, outside of home market. Yeah. Um, so, so to touch on that a little bit, so, so, so one of the, I guess your guys' kind of limitations in terms of the contracting, in you know, with Green Hat is yeah. basically like, if someone was to call you tomorrow and be like, you know, we want to pick you up and X, Y, and Z, like it's not something that you could autom- automatically say yes to, right? Can't automatically say yes to. You have right. to you have to clear it with your partners. Before yeah. before we went to New York Mark, you know, pursued New York Market, we had a conversation with them, of yeah. course, about how much can we scale up and uh that was really the conversation. Right. Can we continue to do this? They distill a huge part of of our relationship is that they distill you know, vermouth is fortified aromatized wine, right? So it's 75-80% wine. Uh, spirit and botanical. So the spirit that we use to fortify is distilled at Green Hat. So um, we needed to make sure that they could keep up with our production needs too. It wasn't just physical space in the distillery. And um, our assistant distillers help us with filtration. Um, There's certainly labor on the Green Hat end that goes into what we do. Um, But it was, it was also about, okay, are you, are you able to keep up with what our needs are? Um, and so, you know, New York is TBD. We don't know if it's going to double our business. That's what we're hoping that it does. It could be a very strong market between the three states. Um, there's obviously great or triple your business or triple my business. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sweating now. Oh God. <laughs> yeah. Ultimately. Right. You know, that's what we want. I think we, we want to be a national brand. I think that, uh-huh. I think that there's interest, um, for what we're doing. Uh, in a lot of different markets and cities in the country, and we'll see how it goes. But yeah, let's start with double. Let's start with double yeah, the business right? and yeah, then see sounds, how it goes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're hoping for some success in New York. So. Yeah, I think you guys are going to find it. Thank you. Um, so, what, what advice or tips would you give um, someone that was, you know, wanting to start a spirits brand? Wow. Oh my gosh. Where to even start? Um, I think that if you're starting a spirits brand specifically, if you're interested in distillation, my first bit of advice would be learn to distill. Um, find a source for, uh, that actual process. You know, the fun thing, you know, I'm sort of speaking for John and Michael, but John, um, was in spirits and food and beverage. And so there's a certain amount of, of information that you gather and, and, and knowledge that you accrue over time. Uh, and Michael was a home brewer. So the, the, the fermentation process was, you know, familiar to, uh, to Michael, but then they also learned to distill. Um, and I think that that's important, you know, when it comes to structuring your investors and getting money, if you're starting from scratch and you're really starting a distillery, good grief, um, you know, do your homework, <laughs> cross your fingers. yeah, do you cross your fingers, do your homework and don't expect to make any money for like five years, Yeah, <laughs> figure out how to do that. Um, and you know, without, and just know that it's like extremely capital intensive. It's extremely capital intensive. It's not something that you start with a small investment. You know, even even with our incredible relationship with New Columbia, um, all of my savings went into this project, and it wasn't a huge amount of money. It was a huge amount of money to me. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's the thing. It's not a get rich quick scheme. This industry, and I think that once you scratch past the surface, you know, food and beverage 
it's not a money making uh, scenario in in that if you own one business uh, and that's what you do and you're dedicated to it, you're not you know you're not laughing all the way to the bank. Yeah, um, right. And that there's a certain amount of uh, that's very humbling. Yeah, you know? it's not not for everyone. I mean, it's a sexy thing. Food and food and drink. Is I mean, I think so it, sexy right yeah, now. I think it depends on also like what you're you know if you're just like in love with the craft and that's why you're doing it. Right. And you really want to bring a great product to market um, so that consumers are you know eating better and healthier or whatever um, versus, you know, I think, you know, people are starting food and beverages or food and beverage companies, you know, with the idea in mind that they want to like disrupt the market and they have like a five-year plan to like sell to Nestle or, yes, you know, that's one approach too. Yeah. Or is it what Um, you do? It's not the approach that we've taken. Neither, Um, neither I. Right. So yeah. Are you doing it because you feel excited, dedicated and um, really think that you have a great product that, you know, you have to believe in what you do. And I mean, without sounding corny, I don't know if it's corny. It's really not corny. It's it, you have to believe in what you do. You have to be excited about what you do and you have to dedicate yourself to it wholly and completely. That doesn't mean that every day you get out of bed and you leap out of bed, puppy dogs, rainbows, sunshine, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> Why yeah, I am mean, I doing this? Yeah. I mean, that's completely reasonable. You're making a, you know, a ton of sacrifices to Absolutely, do this. So yeah. you better love it. Well, yes. thanks so much for joining me oh my today. Gosh. Thank um, you for having for me, Sarah. Making delicious spirits. That's all for now. We'll be back on air next Wednesday at noon. Alrighty, take care. Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at Full Service RDO, on Instagram and Facebook at Full Service Radio. Thanks for listening.